and welcome to another episode of Meanwhile in an Abandoned Warehouse. Today I'm sitting here, I'm Owen Kelly and I'm in Helsinki and I'm with Sophie Hope who's sitting there in London somewhere. Now in the last episode Sophie brought up the... Hello! Hello! Yes she is there you see. In the last episode Sophie and I were talking with George Fleming the filmmaker and Sophie brought up the concept of Raymond Williams structures of feeling and she persuaded us that this would um, answer some of the questions that we were discussing so Sophie and I decided we'd reread Raymond Williams and spend this episode discussing the concept of structures of feeling and how it might be useful when applied to conversation about cultural democracy now for those of you following along at home Uh, Raymond Williams wrote a book called Marxism and Literature, which was published in 1977. It has three sections, basic concepts, cultural theory and literary theory. And our readings for today are taken from chapters 7, 8 and 9, which are almost the final chapters in the cultural theory section. And and chapter 9 is in fact called Structures of Feeling and is the one we'll be concentrating on. Okay, Sophie, perhaps you could tell us why you think structures of feeling are important to think about when discussing cultural democracy. And I should point out that in the background we can hear Henry, who has clear opinions about why structures of feeling are important. (laughs) He's very vocal today. But he's he's fine. Um, yeah. So I think um, for me, structures of feeling is a concept um, that's come up before in um, in some of our discussions. I think, and certainly, um, it was a was a kind of approach and way of understanding and perhaps doing social history work, um, which um, came, uh, came became useful for me when I was doing an event with Herbert Pimlot um, at Birkbeck a few years ago where we revisited 1979 um, and various speakers spoke about their research and experiences and understandings of 1979 and we used structures of feeling as a kind of way in, a gateway to sort of try and get our heads around how we understand um, a time and a place. Um, and Herbert um, Pimlot was, um, yeah, he, he, he kind of, uh, I guess, introduced and um, uh, helped me through thinking about the concept structures of feeling which to be honest I still feel quite confused by I really like the term I really I think I every every so often when I read it I'll get a little glimmer of like okay that's what he means by structures of feeling but it's not a very easily graspable idea which is I guess why it's so appealing as well the reason I thought we'd be good for us to have another go at it trying to trying to understand it in relation to cultural democracy is uh, is because of our interest and concern and uh, I don't know sort of enthusiasm I suppose for trying to understand what this fluid complex term cultural democracy is and how it's morphed and changed throughout time. One when I was rereading the chapter on structures of feeling and the pre- the one previous to that which explains the difference between emergent and residual culture that Raymond Williams talks about is that often you start to kind of you begin to sort of understand what emergent culture might be almost when it's 
kind of too late and it's been absorbed and, and um, incorporated into dominant culture. And I thought when I was reading that, Owen, you know, when we started this podcast, we were reflecting on how the Arts Council and King's College and there were lots of sort of reports and interest in cultural democracy all of a sudden. And I'm wondering, maybe that is, you know, maybe that's something. Maybe that's why why there's this. Uh, we, we we've kind of been re- interested in revisiting this this um, this concept, this approach, this policy, this you know, this politics, because because cultural democracy has been, you know, or is being kind of co-opted and and incorporated into dominant forms of culture. So it makes us sort of want to try and revisit its its radical roots. It's um, uh, uh, um, so I thought, yeah, I just thought hell let's have a go at trying to understand this term again and see where we get to in relation to cultural democracy not assuming that we will give all the answers in a clear kind of concise breakdown but um but yeah another chance to revisit it what do you think Owen? well it, i was reminded of um what has always struck me as the core of raymond williams's arguments although other people may disagree which is his constant return to the idea which he expresses, for example, in the first sentence of the chapter on structures of feeling. He says, in most description and analysis, culture and society are expressed in a habitual past tense. The strongest barrier to the recognition of human cultural activity is this immediate and regular conversion of experience into finished products. And it seems to me that's one of his core arguments. He talks about at other points in in, uh, Marxism and literature, he talks about the way in which communists use superstructure and hegemony as terms which classify cultural activity as though it were... as though culture consisted of fixed products whose nature had been long ago decided. And he's all the time talking about process. Williams is all the time contrasting this idea of viewing things through the lens of a past tense with our immediate sensory perceptions when we find ourselves in the present. And in this book, as indeed in other books, he talks about the fact that we have a very impoverished language to describe the present that all the big ideas, in quote marks, have at their heart a tendency, a very definite tendency, to place things in the past as fixed objects. So he says, uh, he says, it's the reduction of the social to fixed forms that remains the basic error. Marx often said this, and some Marxists quote him in fixed ways before returning to fixed forms. The mistake, as so often, is in taking terms of analysis as terms of substance. Thus we speak of a world view, or of a prevailing ideology, or of a class outlook, often with adequate evidence, but in this regular slide towards a past tense and a fixed form, suppose, or even do not know that we have to suppose, that these exist and are lived specifically and definitively in singular and developing forms. Perhaps the dead can be reduced to fixed forms, although their surviving records are against it, but the living will not be reduced, at least in the first person. So he's quite clear, I think, that 
When we're discussing cultural formations, we are, we ought to be. If we're not, we ought to be discussing processes that are unfinished and untidy. And as you say, he talks about emergent cultural activity, and he also talks about pre-emergent cultural activity. He makes the point that you were alluding to earlier, when he says that yeah. by the time things are emergent, they may already be incorporated. They may already be uh, on their way to becoming mainstream. Although he doesn't use that phrase, it's the pre-emergent that perhaps we should be seeking out and looking at. And he does define structures of feeling at some point as well. He says that for structures of feeling can be defined as social experiences in solution, as distinct from other social semantic formations which have already been precipitated and are more evidently and more immediately available. So he's talking about the fluidity and the difficulty in catching that fluidity when he. Says that he's going to use the term structures of feeling, even though he recognises this is a difficult term. Yes, I um, one of the the, the 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 ways I get in my head around this, in, in a, probably simplifying it too much, which is not very uh, Raymond Williams thing to do. <laughs> like I think, I think he likes to think, keep things complex, which is also important. But um, is the uh, the relation? To, so my understanding of structures of feeling are that are how. You have, um, he talks about the social and the personal, as you've already talked about. The social often has this assumption that it's in the past, it's formed, fixed, explicit, whereas the personal is sort of given this subjective, present, moving, alive, active form. Um, and he also talks about a third um, element social, personal, and thought, and thought as being felt and, um, uh, and how, we, how we feel as and through thought. So I think the for me it's the morphing of um, these elements and um, how there is there is always a relationship and that that relationship is fraught, tense, complex um, between the both the both the kind of formal um, uh, and systemic and structural and the um, the actively lived and felt experiences. So he also sometimes, he, I think in the text, he talks about um, how structures of feeling could also be understood as structures of experience. Um, and I guess the question for uh, for us, and something that he brings up a lot as well, is the is how uh, social experience, in terms of how it how we interact and relate with each other, with structures, with institutions, with daily life, with bureaucracies and everything, how. Um, how all of that is is absolutely embedded and fraught with um, with hierarchies, and that within all of that messiness, <laughs> of course, there are both dominant, residual, and emergent forms and characteristics of culture that that are being shaped, um, overwrit- overwritten, and um, and experienced. Uh, so it's a bit, it's a really messy business. Looking, and I think that, that what the question I have as well is how. Do we apply this in practice in our research? So one of the things I was thinking about that came up in George's film and we talked a bit about last time was the 1986 um, conference, wasn't it? The Sheffield, was it 1986? The conference where you where um, uh, the, the Manifesto for Cultural Democracy was presented. And I think just as an example of one little moment in time, 
the um, you know could we could we apply kind of a structures of feeling um, analysis to such an event for example and what would that look like um, would you know we'd have to take in so many different sort of factors and characteristics and, and, and aspects and experiences um, but also as we did that as, as we if we were to kind of do a round table for example where we tried to access the structures of feeling at that time and place everyone around the table would have their own kind of current um, structures of feeling that would inf- you know would of course you, you would be speaking from the present and your own lived experience since that conference in 1986 so it's um, I think that's what I like about this as a, a as a way of thinking is that it allows us to keep the process messy and um, uh, but also not not but not you know not avoid doing it but just um, giving us a um, giving us a, a, a yeah some access points to understanding those those moments in time that but 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 acknowledging that we're doing that from a present from our present selves who have feelings and thoughts and structures of our own to deal with. Williams himself talks, as you say, about uh, structures of experience. He says that an alternative definition would be structures of experience, in one sense the better and wider word, but with the difficulty that one of its senses has that past tense which is the most important obstacle to recognition of the area of social experience which is being defined. He says that what we're talking about are characteristic elements of impulse, restraint and tone, specifically affective elements of consciousness and relationships, not feeling against thought, but thought as felt and feeling as thought, practical consciousness of a present kind in a living and interrelated continuity. We are then defining these events these elements as a structure, as a set with specific internal relations, at once interlocking an intention, intention, but yet we are also defining a social experience which is still in process, often indeed not recognised as social, but taken to be private, idiosyncratic and even isolating, but which in analysis has its emergent, connecting and dominant characteristics, indeed its specific hierarchies. What I, what I take from, from this is that he's, again, trying desperately to insist that we should remain in the present or find ways of remaining in the present while making these kind of analyses and that we must recognise the interplay between past, present, private, social when we come to looking at histories and he also says in a, in a previous chapter, I think it's in Traditions, Institutions and Formations, he talks about the fact that traditions are themselves lived in the present. He talks, he talks about the fact that what is, said, what is then to be said about any tradition is that it is in this sense, and I'll explain in a second what this sense is, an aspect of contemporary social and cultural organisation in the interest of the dominance of a specific class. It is a version of the past which is intended to connect with and ratify the present. What it offers in practice is a sense of predisposed continuity. So he sees tradition as something that we continue to live and continue to enact and continue to change. And I think from William's perspective, tradition itself is something that is constantly reworked and rethought through 
and refelt, with the result that, in some ways, it is true that we spend much of our lives in search of a better past, a concept which I think holds especially true for those people who don't find themselves sitting happily in the middle of or in the centre of the current hegemony. I was thinking on that note, the um, something that he does bring up um, quite a lot is, is class and um, the significance of class in relation to emergent cultures. Obviously, it's coming from a Marxist perspective as well, so class is going to play um, a big part of that and how um, like the formation of, and development of the working class meant new kind of emergent forms of culture obviously emerged with that. Um, but obviously then it's like what happens to those forms of, and I think that's the connection perhaps as well to cultural democracy in relation to working class cultures, cultures and the um, either the, the, the erasure or, or marginalisation or incorporation of those cultures into um, dominant forms. One of the things Williams does say in that chapter, Dominant, Residual and Emergent, is he differentiates between what he calls historical analysis and what he calls epochal analysis. He says that in what I've called epochal analysis, a cultural process is seized as a cultural system with determinate dominant features, feudal culture or bourgeois culture or a transition from one to the other. This emphasis on dominant and definitive lineaments and features is important and often in practice effective, but it then often happens that its methodology is preserved for the very different functions of historical analysis, in which a sense of movement within what is ordinarily abstracted as a system is crucially necessary, especially if it's to connect with the future as well as with the past. In authentic historical analysis, it is necessary at every point to recognise the complex interrelations between movements and tendencies, both within and beyond a specific and effective dominance. It's necessary to examine how these relate to the whole cultural process, rather than only to the selected and abstracted dominant system. Thus, bourgeois culture is a significant generalising description and hypothesis expressed within epochal analysis by fundamental comparisons with feudal culture or socialist culture. However, as a description of cultural process over four or five centuries and in scores of different societies, it requires immediate historical and internally comparative differentiation. Moreover, even if this is acknowledged or practically carried out, the epochal definition can exert its pressure as a static type against which all real cultural process is measured, either to show stages or variations of the type, or at its worst, to select supporting and exclude marginal or incidental or secondary evidence. Now I think here, when we talk about class, I think Williams distinguishes between what he terms historical view of the process of class and the more epical view of the static idea of the working class. When we talk about the marginalisation of the working class, I find myself kind of understanding what some people might mean, but finding it odd that they would choose to frame it in that way, 
unless they're deliberately appealing to nostalgia. Because otherwise we get into all sorts of strange territory where we start asking ourselves, was the punk movement a working class movement? Then we start to have these questions, well, was it a genuine working class movement? And I think from William's perspective, there is a non-stop sense of change and progress not necessarily progress towards something, change and what appears to people, rightly or wrongly, as progress, but may only be process. And I think he would step back from saying the working class have had their heritage taken away. And I find, I find it difficult when people are raising that question because there are also other questions, economic questions, questions of definition, because in a previous episode we talked about the offshoring, the outsourcing, the exporting of traditional working class roles. So that all the things that the working class did in Victorian England, mm. working themselves into early graves, making, making shawls and, and working in iron factories and slaving for very little money in, in the mills. But the great part of that has been exported to the Far East. And so we get this strange situation in which what we mean by the working class is at one level now divorced from the economic process of production and at another level is fueled by a nostalgia. So the working class are those people who have grown up with parents who are working class in a district that their grandparents used to refer to as working class. I find those complexities to do in part with what Williams describes as the use of base superstructure and the use of traditions and the particular way in which the concept of hegemony is used, all of which serve to make it difficult, if not impossible, to keep the fact in mind that all human activity is a never-ending process and we can only observe that process and what we are doing after the fact is compartmentalising it. And at each point... It is more slippery than that. Yeah. One of the useful examples he gives, I find, is the um, history of language to explain that concept. So that despite uh, continuities in grammar and vocabulary, no generation speaks quite the same language as as its predecessors, he says. Um, And I think that's quite a useful metaphor or something to be thinking about the the fact that what we're dealing with are oral relations and um, and interactions and continual change and, and adaptation and um, recycling and re- rehearsing and um, and it's yeah it's an active live process um, living process so for me that that's a, a useful example of how this uh, what he means by that yes he says that the difference can be defined in terms of additions, deletions and modifications. What really changes is something quite general over a wide range and the description that often fits the change best is the literary term style. It's a general change rather than a set of deliberate choices, even though choices can be deduced from it as well as effects. And I think that's true and what that means, if I understand Williams correctly, is even terms like the working class and the bourgeoisie are not uh, accepted from this change, this process of change. So as I was outlining earlier, what we mean by the working class has changed dramatically. What emerges when we're looking at emergent structures 
what emerges quite often is a new way of imagining a traditional concept. So I think cultural democracy, the quest for cultural democracy, is part of such a process. And I think we would be fools or be foolish if we imagined that after 52 episodes or 65 episodes or whatever, we would have come to a definitive answer to the question, what is cultural democracy or what might we mean by cultural democracy? Because I think by the time we get to episode 65, there'll be more evidence in, there'll be more opinions, there'll be more things that people have reacted against, more things that have emerged, and the question will be able to be asked all over again. And I think one of the things that we've, is most difficult, certainly I find most difficult, is to keep all this in mind while still understanding that this frees you up for action rather than constrains you or prevents you from taking action. Because I think we've been trained, one of the hegemonic positions in our education system trains us to deal with fixed abstracts. So we talk about church and state, past and present. We make these kind of abstract concepts into realities and then try and fit experience into those constructs. Whereas in fact it's much more the case that we are or should be constructing constructs as and when constructing them makes it easier to describe, define and explain our experiences. So I think sometimes we get it the wrong way round. It's not that theory should or shouldn't precede practice, it's that theory and practice should have a different relationship to each other. Thanks. Well done, Owen. Beautifully put. Okay, Owen, well, on to the next one. We'll see you. I'll see you in the abandoned warehouse in a couple of weeks. Okay, thank you very much, Sophie. Let's say goodbye for now. Goodbye for now. Bye.